Hello, everyone. Um, it's good to be with you all on this beautiful Easter morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Noam. I'm a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm also one of the Sunday School teachers here. Um, obviously, today I will be talking about Jesus' resurrection, but first let me pray before we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here today as your people celebrating the resurrection of your son. Father, as we approach your word today, may you come alive in us. May the word come alive today for us, Lord. May we approach the news of your resurrection in a new way. Father, speak through me. Give us hearts that are open. Give us ears to listen. I pray all this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today's sermon passage, which was beautifully read for us by Benjamin, comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. Now, each of the four Gospels have slight differences in their telling of the resurrection story, but they have a few things in common. Firstly, the actual act of resurrection is never detailed. Uh, It's a woman who are the first witnesses to the resurrection. It is the early morning of the first week, and there are angelic messengers present to tell the good news. Passage U gave me free reign on which passage to speak from for today's sermon, and I was drawn to Luke's account because of the particular ways the angels, that is the two men in dazzling robes, announced the resurrection of Jesus. And since this angelic message is the first time in the gospel that we hear of Jesus' miraculous resurrection and his triumph over death, I think it's important to spend some time on the message itself. So let's take a closer look. On verse 5, from verse 5, sorry, it says... The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. So these are the very first words that the women hear from the two messengers. And as I was preparing this sermon and reflecting on the passage, I was struck by how utterly bizarre the angel's question is. Why do you look for the living among the dead? This question implies that there is something illogical and nonsensical about the woman's actions, that they're doing something that doesn't really make sense. And I think that's a bizarre question to ask because, quite frankly, what the women are doing does make sense in human terms. Let's reflect back on what's recently happened. In the past week, their beloved teacher, Lord Jesus, has been betrayed, arrested, sentenced to death, and crucified. It's a very public and very humiliating death, and one commonly associated with or reserved for criminals. In the previous chapter, in Luke 23, Luke tells us that the women watched as Jesus' body is taken down, and they followed as he was laid to rest in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. In 23, verse 55, it says, They saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then, following funerary practices of the time, they prepared spices and perfumes with which to anoint his body. And after observing the Sabbath, they rise early in the morning the next day and head to the tomb. And yet, when they arrive, they see that the stone has been rolled away and that there is no body but an empty tomb. And as they're trying to make sense of what they're seeing, they encounter two men who ask them an utterly bizarre question that I I imagine must have made them stop short. Why do you look for the living among the dead? 
A tomb is a natural place to seek one whose death they had just witnessed. From an ordinary human perspective, it makes complete sense that they would go and seek him in the tomb where he was laid, in the tomb where the dead belong. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Biblical commentators have pointed out that this question contains a gentle rebuke. There is something that the women are not quite understanding, something illogical or wrong about their actions that needs correction. I'm a tutor in the School of Divinity at the university, and part of my job requires marking undergraduate essays. And in our training, we are told that when assessing and giving feedback, we should never demean or insult, but instead give constructive feedback that encourages the student to think again or think further. For example, I might write, could you expand this argument further? What would this look like in different contexts? Could a case study strengthen this point? So what is it here that the women have gotten wrong? As I said earlier, at first glance, from a human perspective, from a human framework, their actions make sense. They are looking for the dead in a tomb. Where else would they look? Yet, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, 38, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. The God we worship, the God of Easter Sunday, is a God of life, of joy, and of hope. He is a God who has come to give life, and life in abundance, as it says in John chapter 10, verse 10. The angel's first words to the women's to the women therefore serves as a kind and guiding question that prompts them to think again, to explore other possibilities, to remember. We'll come back to this idea of remembrance at the end, but let's take a look at the next part of the angel's message. After asking this question to the women, the angels go on to explain, he is not here, he has risen. He is not here. Not here indicates absence. And absence can be hard. It can be debilitating. I remember in the days just after my grandmother passed away a few years ago, looking into her room and seeing her empty bed. She had lived with me and my family ever since I was five, and hers was a constant and steady presence in my life. I recall walking into her room the morning after her body had been taken to the funeral parlor and seeing that someone had laid a single lily there on her pillow. I think that was meant to be beautiful or meaningful, but instead, for me at least, it only served to emphasize that she was not there. It should not have been a single lily, but her body and her living body. I recall the emptiness of that room, that bed of stark white sheets. So when I read this passage, I can easily imagine and sympathize with the shock and panic and keen sense of loss that must have taken hold of the women as they encountered the empty tomb. I think over time as Christians, we can become desensitized to how distressing it would have been for the women to realize that the body of their beloved Lord is gone. The absence of a body to anoint means that there is nothing to mourn, nothing to hold or kiss for the last time, nothing to say goodbye to. The absence of something to let go of makes the grief all the more painful Instead of saying goodbye to a body whom we can hold, we have to do it in our minds and in our hearts. We have to imagine the physical letting go that enables the emotional letting go. He is not here. These are words that might be discomforting, shocking, destabilizing. Yet, as Christians, we can read these words as something joyful, 
precisely because of what the angels go on to proclaim next. He has risen. One of the main themes within Luke's gospel is what interpreters call the great reversal. The author of Luke takes care to consistently proclaim the many ways in which God's kingdom and reign enacted through Jesus Christ will be one that reverses the unjust and unholy systems of the world. The rich will be brought down and lowly lifted up. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And here we have the ultimate reversal from death to life, from absence to presence. He is not here because he is elsewhere. He is not here because he's not in the grave. He is not here because he has risen. Each Easter we proclaim these words and I think after a while it can start to become routine or ordinary. Words that we just say for the sake of it. When in truth there really is nothing routine or ordinary about the resurrection at all. When Pastor Jew asked me to preach this Sunday, at first I was very honoured to preach on this most holy and joyous of occasions. In fact, when I told Sam, my husband, he said it was the headline act. <laughs> but as I was started to prepare this sermon, I realised that Jew had actually done me dirty. And by this I mean, while preaching the resurrection is incredibly easy in many ways, it's the cornerstone of our faith as Christians, and we can spend hours talking about themes and new life and new creation, etc., etc., while all of that seems easy, the difficulty lies in preaching the resurrection. The difficulty that lies in preaching the resurrection is that it is a story that we have all heard a million times before. We are so familiar with the Easter story by now. Even if you aren't a Christian, we see themes and the act of resurrection play out in movies and TV shows and in books. It's a very familiar tale, and if we're not careful, it can become an idle tale, like it says later on in Luke's passage. So how do we speak and think about the resurrection in a new way? I think, paradoxically, the answer lies in the past. And by that I mean by doing what the angels tell the woman to do, to remember. The final part of the angel's message to the woman is the call to remember. In verses 6 to 8, it says, Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. Part of the process of grief and death is the act of remembering. We share stories and memories. We pay visits to tombs and graves or special places. We put up photos and hold on to sentimental objects. All of these actions are centred on the praxis of memory, the act of remembering those who have passed and honouring them, celebrating them. The women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body in one last act of mourning, dedication and love. It is an act of remembrance. Yet what I find interesting is what the angels ask the woman to remember. Not a life that has now gone and been vanquished, but what is to come. More specifically, Jesus' words and teachings about his resurrection. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The angels ask this provocative question and then immediately give the woman the tools to answer. Remember how he told you. The angels issue a gentle rebuke and correction that prompts the woman to think again. And they're gently corrected not because they were foolish in themselves, 
but because they were acting without remembering the past actions of God, his promises. Remember Jesus' words. Remember how God has moved in the past. Remember his promises and faithfulness. When we are introducing a person to someone else, we might recall and assess that person's character by their past actions and behaviours in order to give others a sense of who they are. In the same way, we are prompted in this passage to recall and remember God's past actions, Jesus' ministry, as an indicator of what is to come and what we might expect from the living God. And through this remembrance, we can begin to get a sense of who God is, and that sense should lead us elsewhere, away from the tomb. I was talking with my mother recently, who was feeling quite down about some family events that had gotten her quite depressed. And she was dwelling on the difficulties that we had encountered as a family and the difficulties that we were still going through. Long story short, depression and mental illness runs in our family. And I myself went through a clinical depression for several years and I have the literal scars to prove it. When we act or move without prior sensitivity or awareness of God's action and redeeming work, of his faithfulness and goodness, then like the woman, we risk seeking him in the wrong places. We risk dwelling in the darkness of the grave, in the misery and negativity, when really, as the angels remind us, we should not seek the living among the dead, but instead remember. So as I reminded my mother on the phone, with this sermon still in my mind, of Easter Sunday, I reminded her of Easter Sunday and Jesus' glorious resurrection, which reminds us that God is a God of promises fulfilled. Just as God was faithful in seeing me through my depression, my self-harm, my overdose, keeping me safe and alive throughout despite my wishes and my worst intentions, then I believe that God, who is the God of miracles, will be similarly be faithful in the pains that my family are going through currently. What does resurrection mean for us today? How do we think about this age-old story in a new way? For me, the answer comes in doing what we are asked to do. Remember. During Easter, we are invited to reflect upon and remember God's faithfulness. We recall what God has done in the past and we recall what God has said he will do. No word escapes his mouth and returns to it unfulfilled. And that resurrection is a fulfillment of promise, is a fulfillment of the prophecies that Jesus made during his ministry, is a fulfillment of what God has started from the very beginning of the creation of the world, is a fulfillment of God's salvific plan for all of us. The resurrection is the beginning of a new thing. As I said earlier, the God we worship is a God of joy, of hope, of resurrection and promise. Remembrance of God's goodness, of his faithfulness and his enduring love, power and might, even over the grave, even over death, is how we move from sorrow and sadness to joy and celebration. It is how we see absence and emptiness not as negatives, but something to celebrate and rejoice over. It is how our tears will turn to joy in the morning. Recalling God's faithfulness is how the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15-55 is able to write or even gloat, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Amen.
かね。